Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 27 Can you listen to me? Yes, sir. For hours, if you will. I ask only minutes, Jane. Did you ever hear or know that I was not the eldest son of my house, that I had once a brother older than I? I remember Mrs. Fairfax told me so once. And did you ever hear that my father was an avaricious, grasping man? I have understood something to that effect. Well, Jane, being so, it was his resolution to keep the property together. He could not bear the idea of dividing his estate and leaving me a fair portion. All he resolved should go to my brother, Rowland, Yet as little could he endure that a son of his should be a poor man and must be provided for by a wealthy marriage. He sought me a partner betimes. Mr. Mason, a West India planter and merchant, was his old acquaintance. He was certain his possessions were real and vast. He made inquiries. Mr. Mason, he found, had a son and daughter, and he learned from him that he could and would give the latter a fortune of thirty thousand pounds. That sufficed. When I left college, I was sent out to Jamaica to espouse a bride already courted for me. My father said nothing about her money, but he told me Miss Mason was the boast of Spanish town for her beauty. And this was no lie. I found her a fine woman, in the style of Blanche Ingram, tall, dark, and majestic. Her family wished to secure me, because I was of a good race, and so did she. They showed her to me in parties, splendidly dressed. I seldom saw her alone and had very little private conversation with her. She flattered me and lavishly displayed for my pleasure her charms and accomplishments. All the men in her circle seemed to admire her and envy me. I was dazzled, stimulated. My senses were excited, and being ignorant, raw, and inexperienced, I thought I loved her. There is no folly so besotted that the idiotic rivalries of society, the prurience, the rashness, the blindness of youth, will not hurry a man to its commission. Her relatives encouraged me, competitors piqued me, she allured me, the marriage was achieved almost before I knew where I was. Oh, I have no respect for myself when I think of that act. An agony of inward contempt masters me. I never loved. I never esteemed. I did not even know her. I was not sure of the existence of one virtue in her nature. I had marked neither modesty nor benevolence nor candor nor refinement in her mind or manners. And I married her. Gross, groveling, mole-eyed blockhead that I was, 
with less sin I might have, but let me remember to whom I am speaking. My bride's mother I had never seen. I understood she was dead. The honeymoon over. I learned my mistake. She was only mad and shut up in a lunatic asylum. There was a younger brother, too, a complete dumb idiot. The elder one, whom you have seen, and whom I cannot hate whilst I abhor all his kindred, because he has some grains of affection in his feeble mind, shown in the continued interest he takes in his wretched sister, and also in a dog-like attachment, he once bore me. I will probably be in the same state one day. My father and my brother Rowland knew all this, but they thought only of the thirty thousand pounds and joined in the plot against me. These were vile discoveries, but except for the treachery of concealment, I should have made them no subject of reproach to my wife, even when I found her nature wholly alien to mine, her tastes obnoxious to me, her cast of mind common, low, narrow, and singularly incapable of being led to anything higher, expanded to anything larger. When I found that I could not pass a single evening, nor even a single hour of the day with her in comfort, that kindly conversation could not be sustained between us, because whatever topic I started immediately received from her a turn at once coarse and trite, perverse and imbecile, when I perceived that I should never have a quiet or settled household, because no servant would bear the continued outbreaks of her violent and unreasonable temper, or the vexations of her absurd, contradictory, exacting orders, even then I restrained myself. I eschewed upbraiding, I curtailed remonstrance, I tried to devour my repentance and disgust in secret. I repressed the deep antipathy I felt. Jane, I will not trouble you with the abominable details. Some strong words shall express what I have to say. I lived with that woman upstairs four years, and before that time she had tried me indeed. Her character ripened and developed with frightful rapidity. Her vices sprang up fast and rank. They were so strong only cruelty could check them, and I would not use cruelty. What a pygmy intellect she had, and what giant propensities! How fearful were the curses those propensities entailed on me! Bertha Mason, the true daughter of an infamous mother, dragged me through all the hideous and degrading agonies which must attend a man bound to a wife at once intemperate and unchaste. My brother, in the interval, was dead and at the end of the four years my father died too. I was rich enough now, yet poor to hideous indigence. A nature, the most gross, impure, depraved I ever saw, was associated with mine, and called by the law and by society a part of me. And I could not rid myself of it by any legal proceedings, for the doctors now discovered that my wife was mad. Her excesses had prematurely developed the germs of insanity. Jane, you don't like my narrative. You look almost sick. Shall I defer the rest to another day? No, sir. Finish it now. I pity you. I do earnestly pity you. Pity, Jane, 
from some people is a noxious and insulting sort of tribute which one is justified in hurling back in the teeth of those who offer it. But that is a sort of pity native to callous, selfish hearts. It is a hybrid egotistical pain at hearing of woes crossed with ignorant contempt for those who have endured them. But that is not your pity, Jane. It is not the feeling of which your whole face is full at this moment, with which your eyes are now almost overflowing, with which your heart is heaving, with which your hand is trembling in mine. Your pity, my darling, is the suffering mother of love. Its anguish is the divine natal pang of the divine passion. I accept it, Jane. Let the daughter have free advent. My arms wait to receive her. Now, sir, proceed. What did you do when you found she was mad? Jane, I approached the verge of despair. A remnant of self-respect was all that intervened between me and the gulf. In the eyes of the world, I was doubtless covered with grimy dishonor, but I resolved to be clean in my own sight. And to the last... I repudiated the contamination of her crimes and wrenched myself from connection with her mental defects. Still, society associated my name in person with hers. I yet saw her and heard her daily. Something of her breath mixed with the air. I breathed. And besides, I remembered I had once been her husband, that recollection was then and is now inexpressibly odious to me. Moreover, I knew that while she lived, I could never be the husband of another and better wife. And, though five years my senior, her family and her father, had lied to me even in the particular of her age, she was likely to live as long as I, being as robust in frame as she was infirm in mind. Thus, at the age of twenty-six... I was hopeless. One night I had been awakened by her yells. Since the medical men had pronounced her mad, she had, of course, been shut up. It was a fiery West Indian night, one of the description that frequently precede the hurricanes of those climates. Being unable to sleep in bed, I got up and opened the window. The air was like sulfur streams. I could find no refreshment anywhere. Mosquitoes came buzzing in and hummed sullenly round the room. The sea, which I could hear from thence, rumbled dull like an earthquake. Black clouds were casting up over it. The moon was setting in the waves, broad and red like a hot cannonball. She threw her last bloody glance over a world quivering with the ferment of tempest. I was physically influenced by the atmosphere and scene, and my ears were filled with the curses the maniac still shrieked out, wherein she momentarily mingled my name with such a tone of demon hate, with such language. No professed harlot ever had a fouler vocabulary than she, though two rooms off I heard every word, the thin partitions of the West Indian house opposing but slight obstruction to her wolfish cries. This life, said I at last, is hell. This is the air. Those are the sounds of the bottomless pit. I have a right to deliver myself from it if I can. The sufferings of this mortal state will leave me with the heavy flesh that now cumbers my soul. Of the fanatic's burning eternity I have no fear. 
There is not a future state worse than this present one. Let me break away and go home to God. I said this whilst I knelt down at and unlocked a trunk which contained a brace of loaded pistols. I meant to shoot myself. I only entertained the intention for a moment. For, not being insane, the crisis of exquisite and unalloyed despair which had originated the wish and design of self-destruction was passed in a second. A wind, fresh from Europe, blew over the ocean and rushed through the open casement. The storm broke, streamed, thundered, blazed, and the air grew pure. I then framed and fixed a resolution. While I walked under the dripping orange trees of my wet garden, and amongst its drenched pomegranates and pineapples, and while the refulgent dawn of the tropics kindled round me, I reasoned thus, Jane, and now listen, for it was true wisdom that consoled me in that hour and showed me the right path to follow. The sweet wind from Europe was still whispering in the refreshed leaves, and the Atlantic was thundering in glorious liberty. My heart dried up and scorched for a long time swelled to the tone and filled with living blood. My being longed for renewal, my soul thirsted for a pure draught. I saw hope revive and felt regeneration possible. From a flowery arch at the bottom of my garden I gazed over the sea, bluer than the sky. The old world was beyond. Clear prospects opened thus. Go, said hope and live again in Europe, there is not known what a sullied name you bear, nor what a filthy burden is bound to you. You may take the maniac with you to England, confine her with due attendance and precautions at Thornfield, then travel yourself to what clime you will and form what new tie you like. That woman who has so abused your long-suffering, so sullied your name, so outraged your honor, so blighted your youth, is not your wife, nor are you her husband. See that she is cared for as her condition demands, and you have done all that God and humanity require of you. Let her identity, her connection with yourself, be buried in oblivion. You are bound to impart them to no living being." Place her in safety and comfort, shelter her degradation with secrecy, and leave her. I acted precisely on this suggestion. My father and brother had not made my marriage known to their acquaintance, because, in the very first letter I wrote to appraise them of the union, having already begun to experience extreme disgust of its consequences, and from the family character and constitution seeing a hideous future opening to me, I added an urgent charge to keep it secret, and very soon the infamous conduct of the wife my father had selected for me was such as to make him blush to own her as his daughter-in-law. Far from desiring to publish the connection, he became as anxious to conceal it as myself. To England, then, I conveyed her, a fearful voyage I had with such a monster in the vessel. Glad was I when I at last got her to Thornfield and saw her safely lodged in that third-story room of whose secret inner cabinet she has now for ten years made a wild beast's den, a goblin's cell, 
I had some trouble in finding an attendant for her, as it was necessary to select one on whose fidelity dependence could be placed, for her ravings would inevitably betray my secret. Besides, she had lucid intervals of days, sometimes weeks, which she filled up with abuse of me. At last I hired Grace Poole from the Grimsby retreat. She and the surgeon Carter dressed Mason's wounds that night he was stabbed and worried, are the only two I have ever admitted to my confidence. Mrs. Fairfax may indeed have suspected something, but she could have gained no precise knowledge as to facts. Grace has, on the whole, proved a good keeper, though owing partly to a fault of her own of which it appears nothing can cure her, and which is incident to her harassing profession, her vigilance has been more than once lulled and baffled. The lunatic is both cunning and malignant. She has never failed to take advantage of her guardian's temporary lapses, once to secret the knife with which she stabbed her brother, and twice to possess herself of the key of her cell, and issue therefrom in the night time. On the first of these occasions... She perpetuated the attempt to burn me in my bed. On the second, she paid that ghastly visit to you. I think Providence, who watched over you, that she then spent her fury on your wedding apparel, which perhaps brought back vague reminiscences of her own bridal days. But on what might have happened, I cannot endure to reflect. When I think of the thing which flew at my throat this morning, hanging its black and scarlet visage over the nest of my dove, my blood curdles. And what, sir? I asked, while he paused. Did you do when you had settled her here? Where did you go? What did I do, Jane? I transformed myself into a will-o'-the-wisp. Where did I go? I pursued wanderings as wild as those of the March spirit. I sought the continent and went devious through all its lands. My fixed desire was to seek and find a good and intelligent woman whom I could love. A contrast to the fury I left at Thornfield. But you could not marry, sir. I had determined and was convinced that I could and ought it was not my original intention to deceive, as I have deceived you. I meant to tell my tale plainly, and make my proposals openly, and it appeared to me so absolutely rational that I should be considered free to love and be loved. I never doubted some woman might be found willing and able to understand my case and accept me in spite of the curse with which I was burdened. Well, sir? When you are inquisitive, Jane, you always make me smile. You open your eyes like an eager bird, and make every now and then a restless movement, as if answers in speech did not flow fast enough for you, and you wanted to read the tablet of one's heart. But before I go on, tell me what you mean by your well, sir. It is a small phrase very frequent with you, and which many a time has drawn me on and on through interminable talk, I don't very well know why. I mean, what next? How did you proceed? What came of such an event? Precisely, and what do you wish to know now? Whether you found anyone you liked, whether you asked her to marry you, and what she said. 
I can tell you whether I found anyone I liked and whether I asked her to marry me, but what she said is yet to be recorded in the Book of Fate. For ten long years I roved about living first in one capital than another, sometimes in St. Petersburg, oftener in Paris, occasionally in Rome, Naples, and Florence. Provided with plenty of money and the passport of an old name, I could choose my own society. No circles were closed against me. I sought my ideal of a woman amongst English ladies, French countesses, Italian signoras, and German Grafinen. I could not find her. Sometimes, for a fleeting moment, I thought I caught a glance, heard a tone, beheld a form which announced the realization of my dream, but I was presently undeceived. You are not to suppose that I desire perfection, either of mind or person. I longed only for what suited me, for the antipodes of the creole, and I longed vainly. Amongst them all I found not one whom, had I been ever so free, I, warned as I was of the risks, the horrors, the loathings of incongruous unions, would have asked to marry me. Disappointment made me reckless. I tried dissipation. Never debauchery. That I hated and hate. That was my Indian Messalina's attribute. Rooted disgust at it and her restrained me much, even in pleasure. Any enjoyment that bordered on riot seemed to approach me to her and her vices, and I eschewed it. Yet I could not live alone. So I tried the companionship of mistresses. The first I chose was Cillian Varens, another of those steps which make a man spurn himself when he recalls them. You already know what she was and how my liaison with her terminated. She had two successors, an Italian Gianquinta and a German Clara, both considered singularly handsome. What was their beauty to me in a few weeks? Jincinta was unprincipled and violent. I tired of her in three months. Clara was honest and quiet, but heavy, mindless, and unimpressible. Not one whit to my taste. I was glad to give her a sufficient sum to set her up in a good line of business and to get decently rid of her. But, Jane, I see by your face you are not forming a very favorable opinion of me just now. You think me an unfeeling, loose-principled rake, don't you? I don't like you so well as I have done sometimes, indeed, sir. Did it not seem to you in the least wrong to live in that way, first with one mistress and then another? You talk of it as a mere matter of course. It was with me, and I did not like it. It was a groveling fashion of existence. I should never like to return to it. Hiring a mistress is the next worst thing to buying a slave. Both are often by nature and always by position inferior, and to live familiarly with inferiors is degrading. I now hate the recollection of the time I passed with Céline, Jincinta, and Clara. I felt the truth of these words, and I drew from them the certain inference that if I were so far to forget myself and all the teaching that had ever been instilled into me— as, under any pretext, with any justification, through any temptation, to become the successor of those poor girls. 
he would one day regard me with the same feeling which now, in his mind, desecrated their memory. I did not give utterance to this conviction. It was enough to feel it. I impressed it on my heart that it might remain there to serve me as aid in the time of trial. Now, Jane, why don't you say? Well, sir, I have not done. You are looking grave. You disapprove of me still, I see. But let me come to the point. Last January, rid of all mistresses, in a harsh, bitter frame of mind, the result of a useless, roving, lonely life, corroded with disappointment, sourly disposed against all men, and especially against all womankind, for I began to regard the notion of an intellectual, faithful, loving woman as a mere dream, recalled by business, I came back to England. On a frosty winter afternoon, I rode in sight of Thornfield Hall, a bored spot. I expected no peace, no pleasure there. On a stile in Haylane, I saw a quiet little figure sitting by itself. I passed it as negligently as I did the pollard willow opposite to it. I had no presentiment of what it would be to me, no inward warning that the arbitress of my life, my genius for good or evil, waited there in humble guise. I did not know it, even when, on the occasion of Mesrour's accident, it came up and gravely offered me help. Childish and slender creature, it seemed as if a linnet had hopped to my foot and proposed to bear me on its tiny wing. I was surly, but the thing would not go. It stood by me with strange perseverance and looked and spoke with a sort of authority. I must be aided, and by that hand, and aided, I was. When once I had pressed the frail shoulder, something new, a fresh sap and sense, stole into my frame. It was well I had learnt that this elf must return to me, that it belonged to my house down below, or I could not have felt it pass away from under my hand and seen it vanish behind the dim hedge without singular regret. I heard you come home that night, Jane, though probably you were not aware that I thought of you, or watched for you. The next day I observed you, myself unseen, for half an hour while you played with Adele in the gallery. It was a snowy day, I recollect, and you could not go out of doors. I was in my room. The door was ajar. I could both listen and watch. Adele claimed your outward attention for a while, yet I fancied your thoughts were elsewhere. But you were very patient with her, my little Jane. You talked to her and amused her a long time. When at last she left you, you lapsed at once into deep reverie. You betook yourself slowly to pace the gallery. Now and then, in passing a casement, you glanced out at the thick falling snow. You listened to the sobbing wind, and again you paced gently on and dreamed. I think those day visions were not dark. There was a pleasurable illumination in your eye occasionally, a soft excitement in your aspect which told of no bitter, bilious, hypochondriac brooding. Your look revealed rather the sweet musings of a youth 
when its spirit follows on willing wings the flight of hope, up and on to an ideal heaven. The voice of Mrs. Fairfax speaking to a servant in the hall wakened you. And how curiously you smiled to and at yourself, Janet. There was much sense in your smile. It was very shrewd and seemed to make light of your own abstraction. It seemed to say, my fine visions are all very well, but I must not forget they are absolutely unreal. I have a rosy sky and a green flowery Eden in my brain, but without, I am perfectly aware, lies at my feet a rough tract to travel, and around me gather black tempests to encounter. You ran downstairs and demanded of Mrs. Fairfax some occupation. The weekly house accounts to make up, or something of that sort, I think it was. I was vexed with you for getting out of my sight. Impatiently, I waited for evening, when I might summon you to my presence. An unusual to me, a perfectly new character I suspected was yours. I desired to search it deeper and know it better. You entered the room with a look and air at once shy and independent. You were quaintly dressed, much as you are now. I made you talk. Ere long, I found you full of strange contrasts. Your garb and manner were restricted by rule. Your air was often diffident, and although that of one refined by nature, but absolutely unused to society, and a good deal afraid of making yourself disadvantageously conspicuous by some solecism or blunder, yet when addressed, you lifted a keen, a daring, and a glowing eye to your interlocutor's face. There was penetration and power in each glance you gave. When plied by close questions, you found ready and round answers. Very soon you seemed to get used to me. I believed you felt the existence of sympathy between you and your grim and cross master Jane, for it was astonishing to see how quickly a certain pleasant ease tranquilized your manner. Snarl as I would, you showed no surprise, fear, annoyance, or displeasure at my moroseness. You watched me, and now and then smiled at me with a simple, yet sagacious grace I cannot describe. I was at once content and stimulated with what I saw. I liked what I had seen and wished to see more. Yet for a long time I treated you distantly and sought your company rarely. I was an intellectual epicure and wished to prolong the gratification of making this novel and piquant acquaintance. Besides, I was for a while troubled with the haunting fear that if I handled the flower freely, its bloom would fade. The sweet charm of freshness would leave it. I did not then know that it was no transitory blossom, but rather the radiant resemblance of one, cut in an indestructible gem. Moreover, I wished to see whether you would seek me if I shunned you. But you did not. You kept in the schoolroom as still as your own desk and easel. If by chance I met you, you passed me as soon and with as little token of recognition as was consistent with respect. Your habitual expression in those days, Jane, was a thoughtful look, not despondent, for you were not sickly, but not buoyant, for you had little hope and no actual pleasure. To be... Continued. 
Are you a person who does laundry? Because I'm a person who does laundry. And as such, I have teamed up with Salty Llama to help make laundry a little bit easier, better for the planet, and more affordable. So if you want to ditch the jug and the mess and the waste, head over to SaltyLlama.com and use my affiliate code, definitely storytime, no spaces, to get 10% off your order. There's a link in the episode description. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family. And if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime. <laughs>